If you love short stories but have trouble finding people who look like you in the literary canon, check out Likewise Fiction, a new podcast celebrating diverse fiction. On Likewise Fiction, host Mike Sakasagawa reads outstanding short stories written by women and non-binary authors, authors of color, and LGBTQIA authors. Season 1 launched in October, and new episodes post every other Monday, so subscribe to Likewise Fiction in your favorite podcast app or visit likewisefiction.com for more information about the show. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Alexander Chi, whose latest book, the essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, was released last year by Mariner. Alexander is a novelist and essayist and an associate professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. He is a contributing editor at the New Republic, an editor-at-large at the Virginia Quarterly Review, and a critic-at-large at the Los Angeles Times. How to Write an Autobiographical Novel traces Alexander's coming of age as a writer and a gay Korean-American man, from studying under Annie Dillard at Wesleyan and attending the Iowa Writers' Workshop to becoming a political activist in San Francisco and dressing in drag for the first time. The title refers, somewhat sarcastically, to his debut novel, Edinburgh, which centers around childhood sexual abuse, something Alexander was also a victim of. Throughout How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, masks emerge as a theme. Versions of ourselves that we wear, then forget or choose to ignore, are not really us. In one of my favorite passages, from the essay The Guardians, he writes, The attention you need to heal you have been taught will end you. And it will it will end the pain you have mistaken for yourself. Alexander is a writer who makes me want to read and makes me want to write. When I first read How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, I was so moved by it that I photocopied my favorite passages before returning the book to the library. One is about first novels. Edinburgh was not the first novel he started, Alexander explains, but it was the first he finished. I finished because I asked myself a question, he writes. What will you let yourself know? What will you allow yourself to know? In this conversation, we talk about the difficulty of this confrontation and how he keeps showing up to face it. We also talk about layers of revision, the virtue of keeping a novel journal, and how and why to keep writing in dangerous political times. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss why Alexander loves writing on trains and the appeal of what he calls the moving desk by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. There's a, a way in which we imagine that writing is this thing that we do alone. I don't know that's any good for us. What's your experience been dealing with readers who kind of want to dig into the autobiographical details of your work that may or may not be there, you know, often obviously are, but then maybe sometimes aren't. I remember the first time someone asked me how much of this is autobiographical. I was really startled. And I said, would it change how you believe the novel? If you knew, right? What would it matter? How could and this it is talking matter? about Edinburgh, your first novel? Yeah, I just really, I had a lot of contempt for the question and even the spirit behind it. Right. And a lot of, a lot of hostility also, because I didn't think it was their right to know or ask. And I suppose that's why I ended up coming up with the title, which is for the essay collection, which is a little sarcastic, 
because I just feel, I don't know, I feel so persnickety. <laughs> yeah. I suppose even at the idea that I would need to have any obligation to the question. That was my first experience of it. And that kind of stayed for a long time. I never was the kind of writer who wanted to know about the life of the writer. So the whole impulse is completely alien to me. Why so-and-so did this versus this and so on. Like if you read the novel and you believed it and it meant something to you, then isn't that all you need to know? That was really always how I felt as a reader, as a kid. Right. These later explorations of biography and biographical criticism, you know, at first were kind of unwelcome. A friend was talking the other day about the sort of famous biography of Oscar Wilde that Richard Elman did and how long it took him to read it. And I thought of how I also have a copy of that biography that I have moved with for like 25, 30 years. I've paid for it several times over with what I've paid for the shipping. And I still haven't read it because I don't really want to know <laughs> what's in there, even though I know objectively that there's much to be gained from reading it. So it's very peculiar. Yeah. My attitude towards it, I think, is very peculiar. I mean, I, I think probably I naturally have a little bit more curiosity about who I'm reading than it sounds like maybe you do. But also, I definitely have had the situation where I've loved someone's work so much that I kind of don't want to know anything about them because I don't want to risk ruining it. Well, you know, there's that also. I've definitely been let down by meeting some of my idols. Mm -hmm. And I suppose what I've learned from that is to simply allow them to be human which I think then later meant that I had to extend the same courtesy to myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's so difficult, isn't it? Like, I feel like so much of my struggles with, with writing and then just kind of life generally, you know, my partner will kind of very gently just be like, this is because you don't want to admit that you're a human person. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it took me a long time for that. I think I'm still admitting that there's some part of me that still just wants to be like a brain in a vat of chemicals thinking things you know and my body lately is like hi we are right here <laughs> so yeah did the process of putting together the essay collection help with that at all being kind of confronted with all of these different examinations of yourself by yourself mm, help is a funny word for it i suppose I would say, if anything, the picture that I got from the, the collection overall was of someone who has been trying to get more than six hours of sleep for decades. <laughs> 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 um, I, I was going through my journals and found an entry uh, where I reprimanded myself, like, I think 1995. And I was saying to myself, you really need to get more than six hours of sleep. <laughs> and I just laughed. <laughs> Because it's still the struggle. It's still the struggle. Uh, but that's not very exciting, I suppose. I think there was also the way in which I think I wasn't real to myself mm. enough. And I think I paid a terrible price for that. It partly had to do with the way I had decided to deal with abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, which was to sort of, and I describe this in the collection, to perform a version of myself who didn't know that about himself, didn't know what he had felt and what he had gone through. And then at some point that fell apart and was unsustainable. 
Right. And that was probably the most revelatory of the visions. That is something that really spoke to me. I had first read this collection from the library. And so I like Xeroxed all of these pages before I took it back because I loved them so much. And something that really spoke to me, you know, in, in a different way or for different reasons, I guess. But in the essay, The Guardians, you imagine that the worst thing is that someone would know the attention you need to heal you has been taught will end you. You have been taught will end you. And it will. It will end the pain you have mistaken for yourself. That was a really powerful line to me that this idea of just like this shadow self that you've constructed and kind of stopped questioning whether that's real. <laughs> yes, I think definitely one of the big revelations for me in the last 15 years has been the way in which there are things about myself that I thought were my personality that were in fact just ways that I had adapted to being around people and carrying various identities that I wasn't sure I could occupy, or worse, reactions to trauma that substituted for personality traits. <laughs> I think I'm still unpacking those, still finding them. I think it's just something that comes with time. And, and when you feel you know, you're in a relationship with somebody who, who you can go through that with, and it won't chase them off. One thing that was really emotionally difficult to face and writing after Peter was realizing not just the grief I felt at, you know, at the loss of him, but also the grief I felt at the part of that story that's about me being in a relationship with someone who loved me and who I loved so that I felt safe enough, apparently, to begin re-experiencing memories of, of trauma that then broke us up. And I'll always be a little haunted by that. Yeah, yeah. Everything you're saying is aligned with a thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately in my own practice, which is how to make my writing practice feel safer. Mm. And when you think in terms of especially when you're when you're digging up things like that and you're really kind of forcing yourself back into a place that maybe not even back, but just into into feelings or into states that you don't necessarily want to be in. I would love to talk about how you kind of navigate that process. How I navigate the process. Someday I will have a process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, process in a very loose sense. Just sort of how you how you get yourself to keep showing up is basically what I'm asking. So I've had a recent adaptation that I think is really interesting. In the past couple of years, I've been busier than I've ever been in my life, and it's been, it's been a little dissipating. I found myself having days where I would just treat writing like it was something that somebody else did. And you know, I was sitting last night at a dinner listening to someone perform that defense of not writing, where she says, well, you know, I like to think that my brain is always working on something, et cetera, et cetera. It was, I didn't have the heart to say what I felt, which was, <laughs> yeah, but you, you know what? You're not actually getting any pages done. So I started participating in something called The Grind. It's basically a group of writers who agree to email each other something that they've written every day for a month. And so you have to write at least one sentence. You sign up online. You have to be, I think, referred by someone to do it. But it really forced me to finish several stories that I have not previously been able to finish. 
a number of essays also where I just, every day I had to send that damn email out. <laughs> and my agent was, you know, skeptical. She said, it sounds like an IP nightmare. And it does. I said, well, <laughs> it sounds like several kinds of nightmares. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, you're not supposed to comment on anybody's work. There's no, there's no workshop aspect to it. It's really just you doing it and them doing it also in reciprocity. You're just holding each other accountable. And I think those kinds of groups are actually really powerful. I also have been in a writing group that meets at least five times a year, sometimes more, with Mira Jacob and Bill Chang and Luis Jaramillo and Brittany Allen, uh, uh, Julia Phillips. We've really been doing a great job of seeing each other through a bunch of stuff. There's a, a way in which we imagine that writing is this thing that we do alone I don't know that's any good for us. I think, you know, if you can find a writing buddy, somebody that you both agree to go someplace together and write, and you don't talk to each other, it's a little bit like that email accountability thing. You know, I think that helps you get through it. Right. Like you're saying, having those people there when you are working through things that are kind of more challenging to face. Mm -hmm. That brings up something that I, I wanted to talk to you about too, a little bit of a tangent. You are very active on Twitter and I and I see a lot of writers talk about how meaningful you've been to them as a source of support and mentorship and and just kind of writerly friendship. So so that idea of community seems to be something that is that is very powerful with you especially. I don't know. I just I I can feel like I keep noticing writers being like, "Oh my god, Alexander Chi is so amazing to me. He's so friendly, you know." Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's been really challenging for me about Twitter in the last few years is the way in which it's become a kind of organ of state terror, really. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, because of, of the president. It's how he generates a certain amount of constant turmoil and pain, really, like emotional pain. If you're sitting there wondering, like, whether you're going to have health care, uh, whether you're going to be deported or whether someone you love is going to be deported or... You know, if they're going to end birthright citizenship, those kinds of things hanging over the air, things that attack the bedrock of the country. It's just really difficult to go to that same place and be like, hey, and now for some writerly community, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it just feels very strange and more than a little difficult. But at the same time, you know, those writers who are still there with me, it means a lot to find each other there. And I think even if it's just some small comment that allows you to return a little humanity to yourself, that's really what it's always about. Yeah. And, and you know, you talk about in the closing essay of the collection on becoming an American writer, I, I love the way you frame the struggle of doing artistic work in a time like this and feeling like, you know, in some cases you're in literal danger. And so how do you reconcile those ideas? Can you talk a little bit about, about that essay? And it began with an email to your students. Is that right? Yeah. So I sent an email out to my students back at the beginning of the Gulf War, if you can believe it, by which I mean when we invaded Iraq. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I suppose technically the second Gulf War. There was a lot of talk back then about the draft being reinstated. And it felt like a really dark time. And 
a really helpless one. I spent most of the Bush presidency, George W. Bush, feeling like I was in the back of the car while someone drunk was was driving and just laughing at everything mm. terrible. Mm-hmm. And so with a kind of exhausted gratitude, you know, I greeted <laughs> the Obama presidency right. when it came. You know, it was just like it could not have been more different. And to now be back in this kind of chaos where it's not just a drunk driver, but like everybody he's passing on the highway is drunk also and, and drunk on power, mm-hmm. you know. I was trying to write to them about being a writer and why I thought it mattered because I was tired of being made to feel decorative or inconsequential. The other day I was at a a park where there was a Rip Van Winkle statue and all these people were coming up and getting their photo taken with it and no one knew the story. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, what an incredible metaphor for being a writer in America, where like your your character is more <laughs> famous yeah. than you are, but also no one remembers even the story, much less you. But they're still there, posing with the statue. It was an attempt to make them see the way in which art, when it survives, does something that nothing else does in human life for protecting what it describes. And how committing to that is one of the best things you, you can do. Yeah, you use this this expression, speaking to your debt, which I loved. Yeah, that was really something that I, I discovered, as I describe in the essay. I've been asked to write a, a poem, uh, an elegy for a friend who had died. And I was really struggling with it. And then I realized that it was because I was writing it to other people and not to him. And so I had to imagine what I wanted to say, like if I was writing him a poem that I would give to him and he would read, if that were somehow possible. And that made all the difference. Suddenly all of it came together. And I wrote something that I am still proud of. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WMFA podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. That reminds me when uh, Aro Kwan was on the show um, a few weeks ago, and she talked about, I think, a talk you gave maybe at bread loaf this year, but she talked about what a revelation this was for her, this idea of not just who is telling the story, but like why they're telling it right now, mm. which seems seems kind of of a piece of that too, more broadly with, with our work, thinking about what is the urgency of this narrative. Right. That was a talk that I gave at bread loaf about something called point of telling, which is, it's related to point of view. 
but it's essentially why is this story being told now and what makes a story possible. I think of it as related to what I call the extraordinary time of a character in fiction, which is when the writer is looking into this life of the character and there's just, just this one section of their life that is the subject of the story, the section of this life that is more significant than all the other parts of their life. And so why are we there? And who brought us there? And what did they want us to know? And how did they want us to know it? And what happened such that the story suddenly became available to them to tell us? Why would they? Do you find that that's kind of one of the foundational pieces for you as you're drafting to kind of figure out, kind of unlock that question? Yes. And, you know, when I teach it, I tell students, the reader doesn't have to know, but they have to be able to feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Shiguro, for example, which is a novel that I've taught maybe more than any other piece of fiction in my teaching career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the point of telling in that is something that is evident at the end of the novel. It's easy to imagine in that last scene, what moved her to begin writing this, you know, once she arrives there. Mm -hmm. I guess another way to describe it might be, there's an anecdote that I tell about my father's funeral, where his sister came and demanded to know if there was a will or if there was life insurance money. And when we told her that there wasn't any, she pointed to the oriental rug in our dining room. She said, Chuck would have wanted me to have that. That was my Korean dad's American name. Mm -hmm. So my mother turned to me and she said, Alexander, help your aunt to the car with her rug. Uh, You know, just to like get her out of the house. And for a long time, that was all I really knew about that day, how I participated in it, how I felt about it. And then one day my mom said to me, you know, we were talking about this again. And she said, you know, your brother... While that was happening, he went into the backyard and he climbed up the tree there and he stayed there until she was gone. Wow. I never knew that. Yeah. But once I had that detail, suddenly that becomes larger than an anecdote. And suddenly that becomes a story that has more rooms in it. Yeah. And in relationship to that, there's all these things that I, that I now understand about my brother I didn't before, you know. And so at some point, if I'm imagining myself as a fictional character and him also, at some point there comes a time when one brother decides to describe the story of the other brother, and this is part of that. I love that idea of stories having rooms. Is that something that you kind of use also while you're writing to sort of help you kind of map it out or envision it? Yes, I suppose so. I think of it as thinking that came from a workshop that I had with Marilyn Robinson where she was talking about a story of mine. And she said, you have not described all the significant scenes. And at that moment, I understood how there were ways in which the story existed apart from the pages. And things were implied out of that that could be described or not be described. And how I had left certain things undone. 
And that was a, a really powerful realization. Right. And again, that idea of it doesn't need to be there, but its presence needs to be felt. Yes, exactly. It's almost like when you delete something and then you feel like it kind of leaves like negative space. Right. Which is why I usually try not to, I try not to delete uh, whole pages or paragraphs out of a manuscript. I try to put those off in a little file of extra things. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading an interview where you talk about that. I do that too. A lot of writers who come on talk about that and it is a nice, I don't know, talking about going back to that feeling of safety. There is just like a little practical safety of it's gone, but it's not gone. I was really fascinated uh, reading this interview with you about all of the, all of the, I mean, this is part of what is so much fun about the show is I love talking to people about like all the kind of weird habits that they have. The idea of a novel journal also really won me over. Can you talk about that a little bit? Explain that to listeners. Oh, sure. Yeah. I was having difficulty managing all of my research and I was having difficulty with even just keeping track of my thinking. I think there was a day when I found that I had written a scene that I had already written, but in my mind, somehow I'd forgotten that I had written it. I've done that and for I started, sure. started to feel insane. Um, so I realized that I needed some stronger record of what I was doing than simply the files in my computer. Uh, you know, something that would allow me to focus in more every day and follow my own thinking day to day. What I began doing was creating an entry at the end of work. Nothing usually too heavy, but just, you know, odd complaints, half-formed ideas, questions that I had about the work, and then returning to that the very next day as I began. And I would also keep there, like, if I opened any particular documents, what the names of those documents were, and if I had page numbers that I was concerned about, I would also put those there. And it really did help me focus a great deal. Was this something you were doing by hand, like in a notebook? No, I was doing it on the computer. And I was doing it in what I call blog style, which is to say the most recent entry was always at the top of the page. And the oldest entry was the last one on the last page. So that I was always looking at the most recent entry and not all of the entries when I looked at it but I could look at all the entries if I wanted to. And that just came from blogging. Right. And it seemed actually to be a better way to keep my current thoughts in focus because one of the most distracting things for me with a piece of word processing software was the way in which if I opened the document, I was always on page one. And I would have to scroll past everything I'd done to get to where I was. And that proved enormously distracting. And I think I ruined the original first 35 pages of Edinburgh <laughs> by writing it and rewriting it into the ground. You know, I know Joan Didion says that she does that. She always revises from the beginning each time she revises, but I don't know how you get done that way. Yeah. Especially once you have like 200 pages. Well, and also Joan Didion has that famous line about, you know, by the time you've chosen the second sentence, the book's written. So a lot of Joan Didion's process sounds pretty... <laughs> Pretty claustrophobic to me. <laughs> in that same essay, you or in that same interview, rather, um, another th another thing that I really thought was super interesting was revising with a kind of specific 
concept concept or concern in mind each time, like revising for voice and then revising for imagery. And mm, yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about that? I can think of it as like layers of revision, different layers of concern. You know, you try to have it all together as much as possible, of course. But I suppose it came about first, you know, learning from Annie Dillard to circle verbs on the page mm-hmm. and count them as a way of figuring out like how how many verbs were you using what kind of verbs we're using and it created a real like extraordinary distance between what you were writing um, such that you could just look at it differently have more distance on it from verb tenses I went to have I described everything have I said everything that needs to be said about what I want them to experience on the page from the level of the physical have I described what the bodies are doing enough if the bodies matter to that it's like set decorating mm-hmm. is the pistol in the drawer for when that happens, when the pistol has to be taken out of the drawer. I think of it like that, especially if you're writing, you know, autobiographically. One thing that I definitely learned from the essays was that I fell into the old trap of thinking that because I knew what I was describing, everyone else did too. Of course, <laughs> so, yeah. And so I had to force myself to go back in and really describe things in a way that I was too often leaving out. Well, and I would love to talk about that too a little bit with Queen of the Night because there's such, like the world building of that is such a massive undertaking and is so thorough. And I'm sure that there was a lot, you know, obviously you go into in the in the back matter of the book how much research was involved, which is a ton, but kind of making sure that all of that is sort of permeating the story must have been its own very specific challenge. You know, I don't even know at this point how I wrote the book anymore. <laughs> So (laughs) I think a lot of it was about letting certain information filter through your intuitions. So thinking about things that way and through that arriving at something that felt interdimensional and something that felt like it had life in it. Sometimes it was about finding a certain historical detail that explained everything about a particular character, especially if they had been a historical character. So once I learned that Ivan Turgenev had a very high voice, despite being this very imposing giant of a man, mm-hmm. once I learned that he wrote the bust of Pauline Viardot Garcia, his friend and lover, in front of him, even though he also lived with her. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Once I learned that he had a listening tube constructed so that as he was sick in bed, he could still hear her play in the salon, like four stories down where she would play in the evenings. I felt like I really understood how he loved her. And that's the kind of thing that you go after. Uh Uh You know, the other things certainly matter. It's what I call the buttons and coins approach. Like, what kind of button was on the jacket? What did the money look like? Um, things that actually people don't really think about. Mm-hmm. On any given day, I really don't think about what a quarter looks like. Right. You know? If you were writing a novel about me, like, 30 years from now, there would never be a scene where I was, like, carefully studying a quarter. Just, like, wouldn't happen. You see that a lot in historical fiction. It's, mm-hmm. it's the way of the writer showing off that they've They've done the research. Yeah, they've done their research. So you sort of give it a nod, pass by it, but it's just sort of taking up space. 
Right. If in as much as you can remember, you don't remember how you wrote that book, but the plotting is so intricate, and I would just be very curious about how you approached that kind of keeping track of that. Like, did you know? Are you an outliner generally? Did you have to be for that project? I'm not much of an outliner, typically. I would say I became one for that book, uh, but outlines don't really kind of cover it. What I was trying to do at a certain point was to look at, I basically had, had chosen all of these roles for her as a singer. And then once I decided that she would be you know, afraid that the roles that she played cursed her to repeat their, the fates of those characters in her life, I then had to design the plot around that. And yet I also had to make it seem as if a whole other story was happening simultaneously. Right. And the overarching story involved themes from the magic flute. So I don't really know (laughs) (laughs) how else to tell you that that was the level of the insanity involved. But um, that's pretty much the level of the insanity involved. And yet you can't really think like that most of the time. It's really difficult to think that way. Yeah, I think the point you made earlier comes back to play maybe of just the, you know, doing all of the the sort of input, doing the research, doing the journaling, doing the real processing of all of that information, and then just sort of letting things happen. Mm, yeah. This is a question I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Creative satisfaction? Well, I think what it looks like is the stories I get from readers about how the work has changed them. It looks like, you know, me listening at the Strand bookstore while someone tells me a story about how he was staying alone in a house where he found a copy of my novel and he read it aloud to himself from start to finish and at the end felt changed enough that he could be finally in a relationship with someone else. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, it's really intense, you know, when people tell you these things and, you know, I've said before that hearing from readers is like getting postcards from a country that I'll never visit. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll never know what it's like to read my work for the first time, not knowing anything about me or it. Right. So when I get these messages, people sometimes will preface them saying, oh, you must be so tired of this. You get this all the time. And I think I'm really not (laughs) tired of it at all. It's really uh, quite delightful. So if you're listening and you're wondering about sending me uh, a note about how my work has affected you, please don't think that I'm tired of it. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. The best way to support WMFA is to share it. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend or write an iTunes review to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Irissa Apentaku. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com.
WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.